Hi, Jess. So we're into February now. How's the year treating you so far? Yeah, not too bad. The thing is, Charles, how the year's treating us when the beginning of the last one, we talked about how we both had COVID. So really, the year is treating us particularly well. Isn't treating us particularly well. And I know that both of us are very heavily engaged with year-end reserving work. So that's been plenty of fun. But I, I, I can just about see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then, of course, we've had a few more people in the office this week, haven't we? There's quite a buzz. Yeah, really nice. It's yeah, exciting to slowly come back to what our new normal will be. I think still very much trying to work that out, though. I think, as we said in previous episodes, hybrid working, I think, is a whole other challenge in itself to get right. Yeah, yeah. Much harder than working at home or working in the office. Yeah. So today we've got something a bit different, something very much focused at the actuaries among our listeners and also something that, you know, I've been wanting for us to talk about for a while, which is looking at people's careers and, you know, how you can make the most of your career. And I can't think of a better person to help us explore that topic than Nitesh Patel. I know I've known Nitesh for many, many years and always admired the way that you've approached your career and the way that you nurture others. And so I'm really looking forward to learning a lot in this session as we explore that issue together. Welcome to Insurance Uncut show all about insurance. Each week we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So, Natesh, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about your role and the journey you took to get there? Okay, so I'm currently the head of reserving at Argo in their international operations, so I look after the syndicate reserving and also some of the European and the Bermuda reserving. And I've been in that role now for eight years. And so it's been a while at Argo, but I started off my career in Birmingham at pensions consultancy. So I picked up a a summer job and then realized that they were an actual consultancy. Thought, what's that? And got myself a summer job and into that graduate role. I actually spent five really good years there and, you know, learned a lot of good skills, especially, you know, being very, you know, to the point and, you know, sort of being, being able to, you know, create audit trails and, and journeys for people. And then I, I talked to one particular actuary and he was talking to me about my career and, you know, sort of mentoring me. And he was thinking, okay, well, define benefit schemes, you know, they are very much under pressure. What do you want to do with your career? So that's when the, the idea to move over to general insurance came. And after five years, it's it's not that easy to be picking up a general insurance role. So, right. so then then moved into a consulting role with Aon and spent, yeah, I think another good five or six years with them. Went over to Ernst and Young for a couple of years, and then that's when I landed at Argo. I guess something I'm always interested in, and and Charles, I guess same question for you as well. Did you always know you wanted to be an actually? By the sounds of it, at the start of your journey, you didn't. Yeah, it was it was something that actually one of my dad's friends had mentioned to me. He was an FD at a company and 
was probably a trustee of a pension scheme, as most FDs are. And he mentioned it to me because he was an accountant. My brother was an accountant. And so that's not the route that I wanted to take. So he mentioned, why not think about actual? And so then you start to look into it. And, you know, as a naive 18 year old, start writing all those letters to companies thinking <laughs> that you're going to get a job. <laughs> but yeah, it's perseverance more than anything. Charles, what about you? Did you always know? No, I, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do when I was leaving school. And it ended up, I think it was my grandfather saw some cutting in the newspaper talking about actuaries and passed that on to me. And I thought, oh, well, I'll give that a go. <laughs> and several years later, I thought, well, yeah, this, this was a good thing to land into. But yeah, not very strategic in my career plan. It's funny, isn't it? The way that, you know, our careers have developed out of lots of sliding door moments. You know, we could have gone in different directions at any one point, but those certain decisions and talking to certain people along the journey have led you to where, where you've been. Because I could have envisaged myself staying in pensions in Birmingham if I hadn't talked to that mentor. He was a grumpy old actuary, but he was very, very helpful. One of the things I wonder about is in the current market, whether it's more important for actuaries earlier in their career to be more strategic with their planning or whether it's still the case that those sort of sliding door moments are the you know the ones to grab what do you think jess you're a more recent entrant to the profession it's really interesting actually because we do a mentoring program here with lcp the amp program where you kind of get partnered with someone external to help provide mentoring to you and i kind of went into that being like i've always had a plan i was going to go to university then i was going to get a job and i was going to qualify to be an actuary and i did all that and then i was like oh my god what am i doing now and it was really good we talked through various different things about you know areas i wanted to focus on but at the same time she says something really great to me and being like you don't need to plan everything you know sometimes just kind of seeing what opportunities kind of fall to you can also be equally as good to kind of you know just see where things go do what you enjoy and then take it from there so yeah that's quite hard as someone who likes to plan to kind of you know have a steer and have a direction but you know, if you don't have every minute step worked out, that's okay. That's a really good point as well, Charlotte, you raised in terms of when we may have joined the industry compared to currently, because when we joined the industry, the general insurance area is still the Wild West, wasn't it? You know, back in the, I graduated in 99 and, you know, pensions and life were very much more established. General now, you can probably say is a lot more established. You have a lot more routes that are firm and you can see people's careers paths but things like you know people who are encountering the machine learning they're going through that wild west phase now and so you know there is things yeah. to learn from how the general insurance actuaries sort of had formed their career because when when we joined it was you know the company would be we think we need one person or two people as a grad now it's graduate programs yeah absolutely it's like the, the role of actuaries within general insurers is now pretty well defined to the point where I know a lot of people in the profession get worried about being too siloed or too typecast and maybe getting stuck just doing a capital role or just a reserving role and then not being able to widen their horizons. That just wasn't a problem 20 years ago because you had to turn your hand to everything. So I guess maybe staying in those kind of early years, what are the kind of skills do you need, look out for kind of for, for actuaries, you know, joining and developing themselves in like maybe like the first seven years or so of their career? 
I think one of the, the biggest things to be able to do is to absorb, absorb and question. I think there's sometimes a bit of a fallacy when people get presented with these graduate programs. Actually, the best person to teach you is almost yourself in the way that you go through lots of established work that's already on the network drives and things like that. And you go and try and follow things through. And then the ability to question and probe around that. I always find one of the best ways for young people coming into the industry to question and probe is not to ask too many sort of closed questions in terms of what do I do here? The better way to question and probe is this is a problem. I think it can do this or I think I can do it this way, but I'm not sure which option to take. Presenting that manager or the person reviewing your work with options allows them to vision what your thought processes are. And even if they're both completely wrong, it doesn't <laughs> matter. That really doesn't matter because they've thought that you've put some energy and, and time into thinking about something. So they'll help shape where you can go. And the more and more you build that relationship with, up with somebody, they'll see that you've put the work in before you've asked a question rather than, oh, I don't know how to do this. I think that's a really interesting point around even if it's completely wrong, because it can be quite a nervous thing for a juniors member team to have a conversation with, you know, a partner or, or your manager and and present ideas and know that they're completely wrong. But the impression I'm getting is that you want to hear that thought process, you want to hear those ideas, even if they are wrong. Yeah, that journey is I think so essential for learning because you can sort of understand from you know what they know before you start answering the question. You know, if they present higher level skills and say, okay, well, the technicality is this or this, then as a manager or reviewer, you can you can make it more complicated. Whereas if they haven't grasped the fundamentals, you need to step it down a level. So as a manager as well, you need to have that skill to to welcome that kind of questioning. Because if you don't, if you close yourself off and you think of yourself when you're going to be a manager, if you close yourself off pretty quickly that you haven't got time or you haven't got this, then then it's going to be very difficult for the person. I think lots of people understand. I think the EQ of young people now is so much higher than than it was before, just because they can tell when a good time to ask a question is and when to leave that person alone. <laughs> it certainly, I, I probably was probably wasn't like that at all. I just probably asked too many questions at the wrong points and learned from experience. I think you've touched on something really interesting there in that I think there's a parallel between what you describe as a, a very healthy culture of being willing to make mistakes but being open about your thinking. It's a parallel with that and the more open risk culture within insurance firms in general where I know boards would be encouraging people to be more forthcoming if they've got a concern or an idea and not only raise it if they're 100% sure that it's correct because otherwise you might miss a lot of risks, you might miss a lot of good ideas. And it does feel like the culture is really changing in a positive way when it comes to those sorts of conversations. How does yes, that work within your own organization? Yeah, I think we've had this drive over the last couple of years to create that safe culture of making mistakes. And, you know, the level of scrutinies that actuaries have in general anyway, we have multiple layers of checks anyway, don't we? But even when sometimes things may slip through those to admit that you've made a mistake is much much better 
because we all do very early and try and solve it rather than let it fester and get to something more serious. And I think that culture only can come from the top that you really, really push. If you made a mistake, don't worry about it. Tell me about it. Tell me what you've done. You know, outline what your assumptions are because those, those assumptions are the key bits, aren't they? Especially from, you know, when we're talking about, you know, graduates transitioning to analysts, analysts transitioning to consultants, consultants transitioning to managers. Each one of those transitions is really, really difficult. You know, the, the transition from a grad to one year old and looking after grads, they realize, oh, <laughs> that's what it was like for somebody looking after me last year. And it's very difficult for people to, to sort of make some of those transitions sometimes because they feel like I still need to do what my old role was and what my new role is. What advice would you give to those transitioning between roles? I think one of the best pieces of advice I would give to people, because I think one of the areas that people struggle with is that confidence of making that transition, is look back at your successes. Why has somebody given you the opportunity to make that transition? What has been good about you? I always think about it. The word that I use is comparative advantage. I think you need to, you know, as an actuary, I think you need to have a base level at a lot of things. But there's always going to be one or two things about you that make you stand out. And that's what's given you a promotion into that next level. So what is it that you can leverage off that to give you the confidence that you can make that next step? On the flip side, how can senior people help encourage and aid others in making that journey? You can't do it every day in terms of, you know, when people say, oh, we'll have a weekly catch-up meeting. Or, or I think sometimes you go over too much ground again and again. I think you need to have that regularity of, okay, well, we're taking a step back today. What's happened over the last month or something like that? One structure that I've used in the past is, is something where during a half an hour meeting as a manager, I will expect that person to come in with three things that they've done well, three things that they would do differently since we last met, and three things that you've learned, and one thing to moan about. So <laughs> That sounds brilliant. What a great combination. And that three things you've done well is a really good starting point for the meeting because you can't fit too much in half an hour, but half an hour is, I found it, it actually works kind of nicely, but it's, it just starts off that person thinking, I've got something and I've got confidence now to tell that person what I would do differently. Because it's usually something that probably went wrong. That is fantastic. Now, one area that I wanted to ask you about is that if we think about where a general insurance actuary's career can go these days, it's quite different from 10 or 20 years ago where, you know, the top of the tree was really being, let's say, a chief actuary, which at that time was still somewhat of a back office function. Whereas now we're seeing actuaries become finance directors, even CEOs. So how do we make sure that people are on the right kind of journey so that if and when the opportunity comes to get into those C-suite positions, they've actually got the skills and the, the mindset that they need? Yeah, I think that one of the key things to do is put yourself out there and volunteer. 
especially say at Argo recently, we've, we've undergone a, a couple of different projects, one where we're transitioning the reserving system, one where we're transitioning the pricing system. And you've seen that that more junior people that have put their hand up and as well as doing their BAU are working on the project have developed so much faster. That grumpy old actuary that I was talking about earlier in pensions, he, he said to me, if you work a year and do seven hours a day, you get a year's experience. If you do 10 hours a day, you've got a year and a half experience in, in a year. So it's about investing in yourself. It's not always about working really hard. It's working smart, but then thinking, actually, where do I want to get to? If I want to make that chief actuary position, you need to put that investment in and you need to prove yourself against all the other competition that you've got against you because the pyramid system of, of actuarial sort of job market is is as big as it ever has been. So, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. And if you want that top job, you've got to invest early on. And extending that slightly, what do you think about the potential for actuaries to become more deeply involved in underwriting? either in an oversight or analytics role, or potentially even as underwriters in certain classes of business. How realistic yeah. a prospect is that? It is a very real, real prospect. You know, I think, you know, there's a, at least three people that I've known that have made that transition, each one to different extents. You know, one person came back from that thinking that actually it wasn't the right option for me. But it is a very real opportunity. I think the very different skill that they have is one way I heard underwriters being described as professional negotiators. And I love that. I love that as a thought because actually, you know, even when we're talking to underwriters, you are getting played sometimes and you need to play other times. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to know the difference of, between them. And, and that, that happens over time with experience. But the closer you get to your underwriters, and the closer you get to understanding what they do, there could be opportunities as they require the analytical skill. It's interesting that you mentioned negotiation, because I suppose if I was to think about the stereotypical strengths and weaknesses of members of the actuarial profession, I wouldn't put negotiating skills very high up on, on the list of strengths. No, but we're all very different, aren't we? Like that, mm -hmm. that, That's the thing, that the people that probably do transition to the underwriting fraternity, that is probably their comparative advantage that we were talking about earlier. How else do you see the kind of role of actuaries kind of maybe transitioning from what maybe previously was we're kind of alluding to the backroom office type role? How else do you see that changing going forward? And what should people be kind of on the lookout for? This probably hasn't changed since I joined. I mean, you know, one of the things when I joined was automation and we're very much going to be interpreters and communicators. And I don't think that's going to change. I think it's just the, the sophistication of the automation is changing. And so the sophistication of that interpretation and communication is gonna to have to change. But I don't think that there's there's too much change in terms of how your skill set needs to, to look. I think, you know, in my career, I always I always think like say say quarterly reserving. We do quarterly reserving, and there's four of us in a team that do quarterly reserving. I always say that we've got eight hours with the exec to communicate everything that we've done, convince them and ask them to approve the, the carried reserves that we're, um, that we're suggesting. And that's, that's a huge, huge condensation of what we've got. I suppose as we're talking a bit about reserving, 
I always think the single most likely thing to get a chief executive fired is a big, embarrassing reserve deterioration. I suppose just juxtaposing that with some of the very interesting risks that are now, you know, starting to emerge or have emerged over the last few years, you know, things where the risk is not really in the historical claims trends. And mm-hmm. so actuaries are having to make more and more judgments about, you know, whether it's inflation, climate change, some of the knock-on impacts of COVID. What's the mindset that you and your team follow to try and deal with that challenge? I think it has to be collaboration. We are not going to be able to do this on our own. You know, we have to be able to talk to underwriters, you know, wordings people, claims teams, outwards reinsurance teams to ensure that we have got, you know, that wider perspective of what's happening. I've always thought that the, the most the most exciting part of the reserving role compared to other parts of general insurance has always been that we're at the center of most teams. You know, we have to have some kind of line and communication with all teams. And I, I think that as these, you know, these esoteric risks come along, we're not going to be able to do it alone. We, we need to talk to everyone in the business to make sure that we've all thought about what's going to happen. That's a really interesting point. When we did God, almost a year ago now, shall we, did that survey where we spoke to boards and chief actuaries. And it really felt like that a key part of that was the actuary being this kind of person to bring together lots of different strands of the business and be able to communicate that and kind of not overseeing that consistency, but really, as as you're saying, kind of drawing in that collaboration. The way it was described in some cases was that Boards don't want actuaries to come to talk to them about reserving or about capital. They want a cohesive story about where the business is going. I guess the question for you, Nitesh, is the fact of life is that in order to be well-organized, actuarial teams often do have to do a certain amount of siloing into mm. reserving and capital and, you know, there's some risk teams and whatnot. How do you ensure that actuaries as a whole are presenting a cohesive story to the board? I think there's certain channels that I think are are very valuable. Things like the audit committee are very interesting for me. And and we've got a a really good chair of the audit committee that does want to see different people, not just, you know, who's presenting at that audit committee. And so when it's planning season, they want to, they want to see, you know, the people that's looked at the plan, you know, thought about the pricing. And so bringing together different people to present is really interesting because I'm always at the cold face audit committees to, to present the reserves, <laughs> but actually seeing some other faces and some other perspectives of how that business has been put together is, is really important, I think, for the board. Any final tips and advice for someone starting out or kind of early on in their career, how, how they might, you know, take that forward? Always think about your career as some kind of trajectory and, and look back at what you've achieved and what's been, what's been the thing that people have noticed about you. And build on those and really, really focus on how you can exploit those comparative advantages. I really believe that that's the way that, you know, people who are successful in their career get further and further and further. Thank you so much for talking to us, Natesh. That's been a really useful conversation and hopefully will provide a lot of people at different levels, different insights into the role and how we can we can all progress. You know, every day is a school day, I think is a saying. So I guess fun things to end on. What is the one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Uh, I I took up cricket coaching a couple of years back. So that was 
it's really enjoyable. I've taken to it a, a lot. I've joined a little family-run business who who teach five to eight-year-olds, and so <laughs> kids who can't pick up bats, waving <laughs> them around, almost getting them to the point where they can join clubs. That's our ethos. We want more feed assistance into clubs rather than children arriving at clubs never picked up a bat before. So that's a really enjoyable part of my Saturday afternoons. And my nine-year-old son actually comes along as an assistant coach with me. So that's that's a great thing that. I suppose, given the recent Ashes performance, your efforts are, are much needed, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, and it's, I love seeing that progression in in the children. So, yeah. I say a very brave person. My niece is not quite five, coming up to four, and the idea of her with a cricket bat is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> we start off with plastic bats. Yeah, you'll be glad to hear. You'll be glad to. Hear. We don't go straight onto wooden bats. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Natish. That was that was really great. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.